Welcome to Common Ground Radio, an hour-long discussion of local food and organic agriculture with people in Maine and beyond, brought to you by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association in conjunction with WERU, your community radio station. Common Ground Radio can be heard on the second Thursday of each month at 4 p.m. on 89.9 FM and at WERU.org. My name is Holly Cedarholm, and I'm your host for today. We'll be discussing Black Earth Wisdom, Soulful Conversations with Black Environmentalists, a newly released book of essays and interviews by Leah Penniman that explores Black people's spiritual and scientific connection to the land, waters, and climate. I'm joined by Leah Penniman, a Black Creole farmer, mother, soil nerd, author, and food justice activist who co-founded Soul Fire Farm in Grafton, New York in 2010 with the mission to end racism in the food system and reclaim our ancestral connection to land. Leah is part of a team that facilitates powerful food sovereignty programs, including farmer training for black and brown people, a subsidized farm food distribution program for communities living under food apartheid, and domestic and international organizing toward equity in the food system. In addition to Black Earth Wisdom, she is the author of Farming While Black. Leah, welcome to Common Ground Radio. Thanks so much for having me. I'm also joined by Rue Mapp, who documents her personal experiences while pioneering and shifting a new visual representation of Black people in the outdoors. An outdoors woman, she transformed her kitchen table blog into a national nature-inspired enterprise and movement called Outdoor Afro, where Black people and nature meet. Rue is the founder and CEO of Outdoor Afro, and she is also the author of Nature Swagger, Stories and Visions of Black Joy in the Outdoors, which was published in 2022. Her words about nature and Black joy can also be found in conversation with other Black environmentalists in the newly released Black Earth Wisdom. Rue, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I've been looking forward to the release of Black Earth Wisdom and to having you both on to talk about it. I wanted to start by taking a cue from another book, Rue's book called Nature Swagger, which was released last year. The book celebrates the experiences of Black people in the outdoors, and Rue, you describe a practice that you use as a leader with Outdoor Afro. In your opening circle for new groups, you ask participants to share something they love doing in nature. I thought we'd start with this grounding exercise. Well, first of all, I love that question, uh, to ground a community and to really start in an asset-based mindset about what we have, what we love, right? And for me, I love the water, like anything involving water. I don't care if it's lakes or rivers or oceans, um, being out in it, being in proximity to it. Um, I'm just a big fan of any and everything that puts me close to water. What about you, Leah? I have to pick just one thing I love to do in nature. <laughs> I'm like, what don't I love to do in nature? Sleep, hike, camp, kayak. I mean, I'm a farmer. I've been a farmer for, oh my goodness, over 27 years now. And I really do. It's spring here. So it's the beginning of farming season. Yesterday, we were out just in the muck. I mean, we were pulling tarps. We were, you know, spreading limestone, moving hay bales. And for a lot of folks, that's grueling even menial, but for me, there is something about just being under the wide open sky, like engaging with the force of my own body in relationship to the earth that is so deeply satisfying. Like it's the kind of tired at the end of the day that is an earned kind of tired. Um, 
and it makes me feel very alive. So there, there are a few things that I don't like to do in nature. Well, Slack Earth Wisdom opens with a section called These Roots Run Deep, which honors the contributions of Black people to environmental thought and presents a counter narrative to the popular storyline of a modern environmental movement beginning with and revolving around the efforts of white people. And the book points to a legacy of environmental destruction entwined with white supremacist ideology. I wanted to jump into the discussion of Black Earth Wisdom specifically by asking if you wanted to introduce anyone that is important to a conversation about the book, knowing much like, Leah, your response to everything about nature, you might not be able to fit every person into the space of this conversation, but I wanted to hold that space for it. So yeah, it is our practice at Soul Fire and more broadly in the Black community to honor our ancestors when we begin conversations. And so in a similar way, Black Earth Wisdom, as you noted, does open with a lengthy chapter paying homage to many of the people who've come before us in the Black community who remember the beautiful skill of how to listen to the earth and remember that we are the younger siblings of creation. We owe everything to our elders, to the hawks, the mountains, the, the rivers, the moss, the trees. And, you know, among those ancestors, we can certainly uplift, um, oh my goodness, Dr. George Washington Carver, I think first and foremost. Um, he's our patron saint of agriculture. He's one of the founders of the modern organic movement, two generations before the Rodale Institute came on the scene thousands of inventions which he refused to patent because he believed in the commons. And when he was asked, you know, where do you get all of these ideas? He was considered one of the 10 greatest minds in history by Albert Einstein. And so when asked, where do you get these ideas? He said, I go into the forest in the pre-dawn hours and I listen to the voice of God through nature. He said, nature is God's unlimited broadcasting station through which he speaks to me every minute, every hour, every day. If we just listen, if we just tune into the right channel. And so he, like so many other earth listeners, you know, Wangari Maathai, plants are 51 million trees, right, in East Africa. Um, John Edmondson, who taught taxidermy and ornithology to Charles Darwin. Um, Charles Henry Turner, who was the first scientist to prove that insects are intelligent. You know, on and on, there are so many Black people throughout time who have had a deep, uh, spiritual and scientific relationship with the earth that's often just overlooked, paved over by uh, white environmental sensibilities that also very tragically ignore the fact that it's the, the very same colonizing mentality that caused the environmental problems in the first place. So um, I hope in uplifting both these ancestors as well as contemporary voices in black environmental space is to start to heal and correct the mistakes of that history. When I was reading your book, Leah, like that was the, that was what really touched me, um, in step of what you've described as our ancestral practice to remember from whom we come. Um, cause I say all the time, I'm like, I didn't invent black people getting outside. Like <laughs> this is not new. And, you know, it's, it's about a retelling of our history that helps people have a more powerful connection. Like I wasn't raised on the legacy of John Muir or Rachel Carson. And, and, you know, we, we, we give, you know, all of the contributors their due. But when I think about the ordinary people, um, my father, um, people that, you know, 
maybe didn't have a chance to have a book uh, that they were able to write and share the story that they too have a solid and important contribution uh, to this conversation. And so I just, I really appreciate you, Leah, for making this so crystal clear. And, you know, I just felt the ancestors just leaping off the page in joy for being seen and being called by name. Um, and I hope that, you know, it's something that we continue to do throughout our work and uh, continue to model for others to do. One person that's named in both Nature's Swaggered and Black Earth Wisdom is Harriet Tubman. Rue, you call Harriet Tubman a true wilderness leader and speak about her as journeying Black people to freedom through nature. And this was a reframing for me, I'll be honest. Um, when I think of Harriet Tubman, she's encapsulated in the narrative of slavery, and that is an important piece of it. But I felt like it was shifting the tone and the narrative of environmentalism that I've encountered. Yeah, I think that, you know, we typecast people in our history, right? Um, and so oftentimes we're typecast in association with pain and peril narratives. And the thing about, you know, Harriet Tubman to me, um, as you mentioned, you know, I think about all the things she had to know, all the things that she had to just, be completely solid and confident in, in the natural world in order to navigate people safely, uh, to know what to eat, to know what we can use to heal ourselves. Um, you know, there, there's so many skills that go into being in the outdoors. And you think about traveling in the cover of night, like we're talking about people who didn't have a GPS system and keen shoes and, you know, all of the tools that we rely so heavily on today. Like that knowledge was baked into her DNA and was a part of an active practice of expedition to move people covertly, you know, into their freedom. And so I just use that as a metaphor always in the work that I get to do, I'm so privileged to do. And also, Leah, I mean, we are helping to navigate through our work, our community, harnessing and totally enveloping ourselves in the power of nature so that people can attain a freedom. And sometimes it's literal, like sometimes people need to be emotionally free. Some people need freedom through their food ways. They need freedom from all the things that ail us sometimes in day-to-day -day life. Um, and so it was important to me to really recognize in the same way that I recognize people in my family who may not be recognized or viewed as an environmental leader, um, that they too have a very, and it's not casual, it is literal. They had a very important way of harnessing nature so that we can live the most fully expressed and free selves possible. That's so powerful. I mean, Rue, you're someone who's really opened my eyes to this as well, the ways we need to step out of the pain and peril narrative and be just holding each other in the light, whether, whether history uplifts us or not, or whether, you know, there's a book for it or not. And, and the way that you lead people, you know, quite literally walking towards freedom and all of those, those um, aspects of freedom, is something that struck me as such an important 
carrying on of the legacy of Harriet Tubman when we, we spoke, and I hope I hope we'll get a chance to hear more about that. Um, the one thing I'll add about Harriet Tubman herself is um, something that I learned in researching for Black Earth Wisdom is that her lifelong yearning was to be an orchardist. Uh, she had to take care of other people's trees. She wasn't allowed to eat the fruit of the trees. And to her, one of the symbols of freedom was going to be to have her own orchard. orchard. So when she arrived in upstate New York, not too far from where we are, one of the first things she did was to plant apple trees and plant an apple orchard. And as someone who's also a farmer and orchardist, a tree lover, that struck me, it resonated with me so, so deeply, um, in part because when in 1865, at the end of the Civil War, when the freedmen started organizing for what Reconstruction needed to look like, there was a letter written by the people of Falls Church, Virginia, that said, uh, it said, what we need is the ground, our homes and the ground beneath them so that we can plant fruit trees concerning which we can say to our children, these are yours. So this idea of like land and trees as being part of the symbol of our autonomy, our freedom, you know, our ability to self-determine uh, resonated with Harriet Tubman and it resonates with me and with my community up to this day. So yeah, she was truly connected to the land in so many ways. Thank you for sharing that. In Black Earth Wisdom, there's a interesting morality to the book. So there's essays and there's interviews. And Leah, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit for folks who haven't read the book yet about how it's organized and your process for writing it and maybe co-creating it because you're not the only voice that shows up. As we've already talked about, there are lots of voices that appear in its pages. Yeah, there ended up being 40 voices, which I think is uh, biblical and meaningful, though it was not intentionally that. The way that the book came about is um, after learning about Dr. George Washington Carver's practice of listening to the earth and after having my own pandemic-related experiences of tuning in more deeply to my earth-listening practice, it became clear that, that this was something that needed to be uplifted. So I called up one of my elder mentors, as I do when I want to run an idea by, I called up um, Dr. Claudia Ford, we call her Mama Claudia. She's an ethnobotanist professor at SUNY Potsdam. And I said, do you talk to plants? You know, are you still talking to your plants? She said, of course I talk to plants. And so I uh, informally interviewed her and I said, well, who else? Who else is, is practicing earth listening and ecological humility? So she dropped some names and then I talked to them and they dropped some names. And so that sort of my filial web of connection uh, was born. And you know, for someone who's a science major, who's very spreadsheet and left brain oriented, this was a challenge for me because I didn't know what anybody was going to say. I wasn't trying to force anyone's ideas into a preconceived narrative. Um, I truly wanted to create a tapestry of voices. And so it was only after 40 interviews were complete that I started reading and listening and pulling out themes and trying to figure out like who could go together in a chapter, what would the theme be and where does a poem need to be or where does an essay or framing need to be. So it is, it is truly a collage. And I will say that so many ideas emerge, but there are three main sort of like beats in, in the drumbeat of, of what is black earth wisdom. And it's, and it, the three ideas include the earth as a sacred text. So the earth as something we read, whether it's, the ice cores, the bird song, the night sky, the color of the bark on a redwood, that, that the earth is speaking to us through these languages that, that we're obligated to relearn ourselves into. Um, and the second being the earth as, as kin, as family member. And the third being earth as teacher, someone whom we emulate 
in her example of generosity, collaboration, and beauty making, uh, with obviously lots of glorious details below those themes. But um, I think folks, I hope and believe and think that folks will really enjoy the journey of exploring the many facets of the jewel of, of Black environmental genius, past and present, and some of the most notable, including Rue, some of the most notable Black environmental leaders of today, you know, contributing their part to it. I just love that we're in each other's books. I know, it's not cool. <laughs> and it wasn't like, like planned. It just, yeah, I think you and I were probably having parallel experiences going through the pandemic. And for me, I was recognizing the way that people were, as the animals we are, we were turning to nature for our healing. You know, so I spent all these years like trying to sell nature, like, let's get out. It's good for you. You know, like eat your broccoli. It's good for you. Right. That's it felt that way. And then in a snap, people found those connections and they found them close to home and they found them for their healing and they found them for their joy, for their beauty making. Um, and you and I got in conversation together and I just want to thank you for participating in Nature Swagger and also inviting me to be, it's, it's truly an honor to be among those whose voices you captured that, you know, are, you know, a capsule of experiences that, you know, we can pass down and hope that, that they'll never not only not be forgotten, but be applied uh, and connected with for generations to come. So thank you so much for that. You're welcome. And thank you. Nature Swagger is amazing for folks who haven't seen it. Make sure you, you get Nature Swagger on your bookshelf. We have it right on our coffee table. So people are always thumbing through because there's huh? so such beautiful images. Um, that go along with the stories, and, and I find them uplifting and motivating. You are listening to Common Ground Radio on WERU Community Radio 89.9 FM. I'm Holly Cedarholm, and on today's show, we're talking about Black Earth Wisdom with Leah Penniman and Rue Mapp. The book's introduction describes this anthology of essays and interviews as a conversation between African diasporic people who are carrying on their ancient ancestral practice of listening to the earth to know which way to go. While we're speaking about both Black Earth Wisdom and Nature Swagger, they both work to deepen the innate connection for Black people in the land by recording and celebrating that intrinsic connection. And y'all just spoke a little bit about your hopes for each of the books out in the world, but I was wondering if you wanted to share more about the the power that you hope that they hold in their readers' hands. And uh, Rue, let's start with you. Sure, sure. Thank you. Um, for me, I really wanted to I, have this book be in conversation with the work that I've been doing for over a decade. And a big part of the work was about helping to shift the visual representation of who we imagine gets outside and importantly, who leads outside. Because growing up, you didn't see people who look like me in the glossy magazines of the day or when you would see black people in film depicted in the outdoors. Always trauma, fear, um, lack of knowledge, lack of courage. I mean, the list goes on. And I knew that that was a lie. <laughs> it was just, it wasn't my upbringing. It wasn't my truth um, and how I was living and connecting with the outdoors. And certainly through the work of Outdoor Afro, I saw so much diverse representation 
across the United States of how people were meaningfully and, and with agency connecting with the outdoors. So I wanted the book itself to stand in that place of representation, but also meet people in their literacy as well, because I, I wanted a, a six-year-old to pick up a book like Nature Swagger and see people who look like them. Um, or maybe you're not a voracious reader um, and you just want to you know, pick up a quick story or a poem. And so it's designed to really meet people where they are. And even the contributors all came into the book in different ways. Some people, as you probably can relate to, Leah, were interviews. Some people, I mean, when you ask people to be a part of a book, like people go, oh my gosh, that's <laughs> that's a really big ask. I don't see myself as a writer. And so in the process of inviting people in, it, it was, you know, through diverse modes so that people's voices could shine through, no matter if they thought of themselves as a writer or not. Um, but it was really important to me to have a book that, like Leah, when you tell me it's on your coffee table, that is exactly the point. <laughs> like, I wanted to be a, a conversation starter. But, you know, I think about growing up, always seeing like Ebony and Jet magazines on the coffee table and how you opened up Jet magazine. And these are publications that are no longer in paper circulation, but it had something for everybody in the family. It didn't matter if you were into sports, if you were into beauty or business or politics, it was something in there for everybody in the family. And so I really wanted to step into that tradition of having a book that, you know, wasn't just for mom and dad or, or caregivers to enjoy, but for every single person and for people who are not black to also, because I realize that people who are not black are also bereft of the representation. They're missing out on viewpoints and ways of connecting with black people in ways that haven't been celebrated um, so much. So those were really important tactics um, to be able to invite as many listeners um, and viewers into the book, but also to really uplift so much of what my work has been about. Oh, I love that. I love that. And the accessibility. Actually, I was told my first book, Farming While Black, in 2018, one of the most beautiful compliments that I got about that book was that it was readable for folks' grandparents who are farmers, elder black farmers in the South, who do not feel that they can access most farming literature or that it's for them, but that they feel um, seen and included. So I really appreciate the accessibility piece that you're lifting up. I think for me, you know, in many ways, Farming Well Black was the very practical how. It, it is, it was the very practical how to, you know, you can read that book and build a, a, a beautiful compost pile, space your carrot seeds just right, you know, run a youth program. And it touches on the why, but Black Earth Wisdom really excavates that like deeper why. Why is it that even in the face of all of the harms and difficulties imposed by settler colonialism and racial capitalism, like why do we get up and keep going? Why do we continue to weave ourselves into a relationship with each other and the earth? So it is, um, there's more metaphysics, there's more psycho-spirituality in there, there's a little bit more uh, worldview. Uh, because it really is my my belief that there's no amount of quantifying ecosystem services that's going to get us to the finish line here. Um, mm -hmm. As long as we have the logic that 
the false logic, in my opinion, that we're somehow separate from the earth, dominant over the earth, that the earth is here as a resource for us or an environment that we'll keep finding new ways uh, to cheat our own game of, of uh, resource conservation, so to speak. And only when we remember ourselves into the web of life that we're, we're part of, we're not outside of or above the rest of nature, are we gonna be able to survive? I mean, we have like one generation to get it together. You know, we're, if, you, if you were to measure from the bottom of the deepest ocean trenches to the top of the tallest mountain, that's our whole biosphere, that's only 12 miles and it's 0.3% of the radius of the earth. That's the life raft that we're all sharing and we're, we're spoiling our nest. And part of, of moving, uh, continuing to thrive as a species on this planet is going to be figuring out how to share, you know, like going back to kindergarten, <laughs> just figuring out how to share with one another in all life. So uh, yeah, my hope um, is that Black Earth Wisdom contributes to that ever louder cacophony of voices that's calling uh, for us to to once again join the community of kinship here on earth um, and also in a similar way to to what rue is lifting up you know one of the things that was groundbreaking about farming while black was that it put together in one place a whole lot of the contributions of black agrarians and up until that point you know i read all the literature on black farming it was requiems it was like the black farmers dying out or it was about slavery and there's a whole lot more to our story than the ways that we've been oppressed. There's a whole, there's many thousands of years of noble, dignified contributions uh, to farming that, that are summarized in Farming While Black. And so Black Earth Wisdom also adds to a much wider existing literature, of course, but um, that literature that does uplift Black ecological and environmental contributions past and present. And just to keep reminding people like we've been here, we're still here. <laughs> You know, it's John Muir and credit to him, of course, and Rachel Carson, they didn't start this. This started way before that. And it started with the communities who lived closest to the earth uh, for eons and who often have the answers that we need. So we've touched a little bit about Outdoor Afro and Soul Fire Farm. And I wanted to have an opportunity to ask you about the programs that you work on to shape the narrative and storytelling through this lens of representation and increase access to the land for Black people through providing community and land-based trainings. Can you both share a bit about the programming being offered through your work and why it's important? I kind of fell into the programmatic work of Outdoor Afro um, through a learning journey. Um, you know, I started off, as I mentioned before, really focused on telling this newer narrative that wasn't out in the mainstream gaze and using social media back in 2009. And if you think about it, you know, 2009 was definitely a new frontier. Um, there weren't all the complicated algorithms. No one had a job as a content creator. Um, it was it was a way to truly democratize public relations and narrative. Um, and blogs were, were pretty important um, around that time period. And so in connecting with people, you know, literally from my kitchen table, I recognize that people, as they shared their stories, their images with me, that it was appropriate to really lean into the visual representation shift. But it was not long after that people were like, okay, this is great that we're having these conversations. I wanna find my people. I wanna be out with my people. 
So I started actually leading experiences on my own. Uh, and I took parts of the things that I enjoyed about other organizations and how people were already gathering as, as well as tapping into my family history of bringing people together. And I realized that what was missing was hospitality. Like there was a lot of how-to and a lot of risk management, but the helping people feel welcome and, and that they belonged was was not a part of the outdoor recreation narrative in the way that we see that it has become more so today. And so after learning about all of the different elements that created a successful outdoor experience for people, I was like, more people than me need to have this knowledge. And so I brought together 12 people for the first time. Um, first training I did was via conference call. Uh, but then the following year, I brought people together in person. And we talked about, of course, trip planning and logistics and risk management, but also storytelling, um, the, the role of policy, um, artistic representation. And we had speakers come in to talk about our, our beautiful history in nature. And those people went out into their towns and hamlets and, and started connecting people with outdoor experiences. And this year's class, um, is 110 of, of those incredible people who say yes to Outdoor Afro and choose Outdoor Afro to express their volunteerism and service to the Black community. And they're hiking and biking and doing all, I mean, if you can imagine it, Outdoor Afro volunteer leaders have done it. And they've even banded together and done their own capstone experiences, such as go and summit and help redefine summit. Um, away from conquering and bagging a mountain, you know, to being in relationship with a place and its people and, and just, you know, having these capstone experiences that again, go back to our earliest ambitions. And that was to not only help, you know, shift how we view people in the outdoors, but also like who can lead, who has the expertise um, and, you know, really deliberately fighting against this uh, fairy tale of how Black people need to be rescued from our communities by people from outside of our communities in order to learn about being in the outdoors, which I thought was just insidious. Um, <laughs> like, how, how is it that we've got to import knowledge uh, in order for it to be valid? Um, and so these are folks who live in the community and on those trails, they're talking about where to get your hair done, who's uh, serving the best food, where do you go worship. People are building community in those experiences with people who come from their community. And it's really been a joy journey to see how people have grown and, and expanded their leadership into other areas of their lives and their families. I can testify because I'm a member of the local chapter. <laughs> And my daughter actually spent last summer uh, working with our local chapter leader uh, in an intern capacity and organizing kayak trip, uh, some local hikes, some online programs. There was something about keeping, how to take care of your hair while camping was a major conversation that was happening during these yes. trips. So, and it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. Um, so much community building and so. I can, yeah, I can testify from firsthand about the power of that model and the infusion of hospitality. 
and Thank I'll you. say for yeah, <laughs> I'll say for Soul Fire Farm. So we are an Afro-Indigenous centered community farm in the hills of Grafton, New York, Mohican Territory, and our mission is to help uproot racism and seed sovereignty in the food system, uh, which is ambitious to say the least, but fortunately we're part of an ecosystem. And the idea for the farm actually started, oh, my spouse and I had at the time a newborn, our son Emmett and a two-year-old, our daughter Nishima. We were living in the south end of Albany, which is a neighborhood under food apartheid where you can't get fresh food. There's no supermarket, farmer's market, grocery store, you know, um, community gardens even and the bus does not take you to the supermarket. So we had many years of farming experience, but we couldn't grow food and we couldn't get vegetables other than to walk over two miles to a drop-off that a local farm had. And that was burdensome to say the least, uh, physically and, and metaphorically. So when our neighbors on the block found out that we knew how to farm, this running joke would start where people would run into us and be like, Farmer Leah, when are you gonna start my farm? You know, Farmer Jonah, when are you gonna start my farm? And we only took it as kind of a joke because we'd always had that tickle in the back of our mind. I've been a public school teacher. My spouse was uh, running construction business. We always had the tickle, as many people do. One day we'll get some land and we'll grow food, you know, but that's not really realistic because you don't make any money, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but this motivated us. And, you know, long story short, we did go ahead and sign papers to wed ourselves to, to this land out here and starry eyed, early 20 somethings. We spent all our money on the land. We had none left. Uh, so it was a forest and it needed to become a farm. So that means a driveway, a septic, electric, a well, a house, soil building, tree clearing. And it took us four years of, of hard, hard labor um, and sacrifice to be able to get the farm to a point where we could open it and we could move out here and live out here. So we've been full time on the farm since 2010 and our very first program was Solidarity Shares. And Solidarity Shares is a doorstep delivery, pay what you can system for getting fresh food uh, to our community. It's expanded uh, over time, but it's our longest running program. And over the years, you know, we trans eventually, eventually transitioned from a family farm to a nonprofit organization and a co-op. We have these two entities that exist hand in hand. We now have a staff, we run educational programming, that reaches 2,000 people in person per year and about 50,000 people through our online classes per year, training farmers and growers and people who wanna have more you know, food sovereignty in their lives. And then um, we do have staff out of state as well because we're involved in, in national organizing. So uh, trying to get the policies and institutions to line up with the values of earth care and people care. Uh, without getting too much into the long history, you know, the food system is, is not fair to say the least and uh, farm workers don't get a fair shake. Almost all the land is white owned in this country. Uh, it's very, very hard to get fresh food if your skin is brown and you live in a certain zip code. And so uh, we need to change things on the people to people level, but there's also some institutional change and, and systems change that needs to happen. So, you know, we have folks marching in DC and rallying in Detroit and, you know, getting involved with, with these um, sort of broad, broader things as well. I wanted to spend a little more time looking at the legacy of Black land stewardship in terms of the food system and how it relates to organic agriculture specifically. And Leah, in Black Earth Wisdom, you wrote, a dangerous mythology prevails that Black people's relationship to land is circumscribed by slavery and has no connections to the global organic and regenerative agricultural movements. You also write that, quote, part of healing racism in America is to give credit where it's due 
to Black, Indigenous, and Asian peoples for their contributions to regenerative ways of tending agroecosystems. I'm hoping you can speak to the legacy of agroecological thought and practice that Black communities have contributed to and are contributing. I know that's a big Oh, it's ask. huge. It's huge. But it's so important, you know, because when I started out as a farmer in the 90s, I would go to these conferences and they were almost all white people. Definitely all the presenters and all the authors were white. And I had a crisis of identity and faith. I'm like, did I choose the wrong team? Am I a traitor to my people? I need to get involved in these other issues. right? And so it was just so important. You know, fortunately, I found Mama Karen Washington. She mentored me, took me under her wing. Um, helped me to not quit. But this was the book that Farming While Black was the book I needed when I was coming up to know that I was continuing a legacy, not borrowing someone else's culture. So, I mean, if you go back to the continent, um, so many of the technologies we use as organic farmers have Afro-Indigenous roots. Um, raised beds come from the Ovambo people of Namibia. Uh, making compost that includes ash or char comes from the African dark earth compost made by women in Kenya and Liberia. Um, the type of terracing systems that we use come from East Africa. They're called Fanyaju in Kenya. The way we rotationally graze our uh, livestock and use their manure to fertilize the next season crops. That comes from the Senegambian region, as does the first transplanting in the history of humankind in the rice paddies of the Senegambian region, right? And then if you cross the ocean and follow our people, here to Turtle Islands, you know, I already mentioned Dr. George Washington Carver, but he deserves as much uplifting as possible. He is, he is the founder of the modern organic movement. He had folks cover cropping, uh, doing crop rotation, planting legumes, uh, composting and, and mulching, you know, in the late 1800s, because he saw soil care as so central and he was finding ways to heal after centuries of degradation from monoculture um, under the under enslavement of the sugar and the tobacco and and um, other of those cash crops. But even, you know, our farm to table movement, we can thank Booker T. Watley for that, whether you do CSAs or pick your own or any farm to table direct to consumer strategy. He had the economic foresight to see that that was the way that small farmers would be able to make it if they cut out the middle person. Right, our co-ops, we can thank Fannie Lou Hamer for her contributions to the co-op movement, our land trust, the uh, Charles and Shirley Sherrod, Charles and Blessed Memory, he just passed away uh, not too long ago, but the New Communities was the first community land trust, our credit unions, our work parties, so much of what we take for granted and often think as ahistorical or European has roots in the black community. And it's, it's so important to uplift that, both because it's morally right, but also when we're working with young people and they come to the farm, they immediately see the relevance of this work to their own community and history when they can place themselves in a lineage. So beautiful. Girl, you got game. Okay, like, <laughs> just like drop that knowledge, okay? And it just rolls off of your spirit. Um, in such an easy way that I find, you know, is consistent with the experience that I have with your book. Um, so I just want to recognize oh, you. you for the gift you are and your incredibly powerful and loving way um, that you bring our stories, you know, to life and, and relevancy through your programming. I have, you know, spoken already about, you know, the pain and peril, but you know, it, 
even in the face of what is challenging us right now in our environment and the harms and the threats that we, we are living with, there is still room for joy and there is still room for love. And I like to remind people that this, this is a love story. Out, uh, outdoor Afro is a love story. Nature Swagger is a love story. I feel and experience love throughout Black Earth Wisdom. And, and I think that's just an important, because you can generate from love. You know, when someone says, well, you know, I never see Black people outside. I don't think Black people have a relationship with me. I mean, already you're in this, you're in a, a corner on the defense, right? And so starting off with th this history, these asset-based narratives is something that feels so solid to build on and thrive from. Um, and that's something I've, I've been very deliberate to do in a world that, you know, really wants to hammer problem, problem, problem. Um, and, you know, for busy working families, they, they're managing enough just getting through the week, uh, getting kids out the door in the morning. Right. And and so it's important for us to position this work in a way that feels generative and, and spacious uh, for people to find their their part in it and, and make it. Um, something that, that's meaningful and relevant to their lives. This is Common Ground Radio on WERU-FM 89.9. Today's discussion is focused on Black people's connection to the land. I'm Holly Cedarholm, and I'm in conversation with Leah Penniman and Rue Mapp. Leah Penniman is a co-founder of Soul Fire Farm and the author of Black Earth Wisdom. Rue Mapp is a contributor to this new anthology, She's also the founder and CEO of Outdoor Afro and the author of Nature Swagger, a book that acts as a roadmap to discovering joy and transformation through nature. Leah, you mentioned that not only is it morally right to uplift the voices and give credit where credit's due, and Rue, you're talking about how joy is generative. I'm wondering about broadening the conversation of land stewardship to include wild spaces in addition to the, the farmland that we were just talking about. What is the importance of not only representing Black, Indigenous, people of color, their voices, but also centering them in these conversations in this time of environmental peril? Sure, absolutely. I just want to say one thing about joy, because I have to be reminded of this too. And one of my favorite short poems by Irsa Deli Ward says, see if I can get this right, I was raised pulling food from the earth. I know where joy comes from, how to make it, which is something that tickles the edge of my mind each time I go out, like as we engage with the earth, we're making, we're choosing, we're making, we're collaborating with the earth to create joy uh, for ourselves and for those around us. And, you know, even though I was raised on the anthem of like, we who believe in freedom cannot rest until it comes, like I beg to differ. I think we need to start inhabiting the world we want to see in the, in the current moment. So the joy, the rest, the collaboration, the fun, the levity, even as we continue to work dil diligently to make change. So I just wanted to thank you, Rue, for, for uplifting that um, as much for our listeners as a reminder to me as someone who can get very stuck in the, the mud of all the, all the work that's left to do until we can finally arrive, you know? Um, but we might not, you know, you and I might not get to the promised land, so we might as well skip along the way and get as far <laughs> as we can. Um, but as far as centering the voices, I mean, there's something there's something moral about it, but there's also something really practical, right? And so if we look, whether we look nationally or globally, the people at the front lines of environmental catastrophe are disproportionately black, brown, and poor. You know, whether you're talking about the 
farm workers who are exposed to heat um, during their, their workday, whether you're talking about incarcerated African-American men who are compelled to fight the wildfires uh, induced by climate change, um, the folks in the Caribbean in the experiencing the devastation of hurricane, um, people I interviewed for the book whose land is literally submerged under water, the coastal waters, that is no uh, Colette Pichon-Battle, whose, whose land is gone. The GPS says land, but, but there's no land. You have to take a boat, right? So, and of course, it, we know about nations globally experiencing disproportionate drought and flooding um, as a result of climate change. And it is impossible to have uh, climate solutions or environment sol solutions without including and centering the voices of those most impacted who often are the same communities that have the lived experience and solutions that will get us there. Um, in a similar way that folks will often, <laughs> like, like black people didn't create racism, right? And so black people can't solve it ourselves. Like it's, a, it's actually the, a broader society. There is no one, one group that created these problems and therefore we need everyone at the table to solve it. Um, I think also even despite popular uh, misunderstanding, black and brown communities are more concerned about these issues statistically than communities at large. When you ask um, when recent surveys that asked about like who's alarmed about climate change or about biodiversity loss. It's, it's black and brown communities that have higher levels of concern and also black and brown religious leaders who talk about these issues from the pulpit more often than society at large. And we're, again, we're just not going to solve it without the voices that are most impacted and that care the most being centered and in leadership. You so eloquently, um, you know, laid out the imperative to not only elevate so that people who are impacted can be heard, but also um, the leadership and the knowledge that's already there. I love how you're, you know, throughout your book and, and in your practice, you know, lifting up the knowledge like we don't have to reinvent the wheel. Um, mm -hmm. The answers are right here. Uh, we just need to shift our focus. And I also appreciate what you said about Black people's care for policy, um, because that too has been greatly overlooked. Um, we have our Hill Days that we do once um, a year with the Outdoor Afro Volunteer Leaders. And, you know, one of the things that is just important for us to do is to show up and let people know that we care about laws that protect our environment. And so there's there's definitely plenty of runway there um, that I'm hoping more people can um, elevate and make it a part of our normal conversation. What's happening? How is this impacting you? What can you do? What number can you call? Um, there's a great um, workbook put together by a colleague of mine, Akima Price, called What's Good in My Hood. It's an asset-based uh, way for young people to really look at their communities as, as part of the natural world. But importantly, it's got the resources where you can actually fill in the number for your alderman, your council member, your state representative, and you can pick up the phone and call these people and talk about the things that are good or maybe not so good in your hood. Um, so I think that that's another part of it. Um, but I feel like in, in my work, you know, I have to be careful that we're not rushing people to the altar of conservation practice um, before giving them a chance to develop their own love story, uh, mm -hmm. like with any relationship, 
Okay, we, we, we go out for coffee one time, it doesn't mean we're gonna get married. So <laughs> you gotta get to know your, your places uh, in order to take certain actions. Like when I go out and I see a child picking up cigarette butts on a beach, my first question is, have they ever played here? Did you introduce them to this environment to work as an initial connection? And so I feel like we've got to definitely uplift our policy um, opportunities, but not separate and apart from the relationship that we want people to have. And that that is the love story that we we must cultivate so that people can choose and from their own agency um, be compelled to protect and to act um, and not, uh, you know, neglect that important part of, of being connected. That's so important. I think it was Baba Diom who said, we defend what we love. And I would add, we, we only love what we know. And there's mm -hmm. so much research, not that you need it, but there's so much research that backs up the fact that the thing that uh, generates pro-environmental behavior in adults is a love story with the earth as a child. And there's no amount of statistical um, terror that you can instill in a child that will compel them to want to, uh, you know, pick up cigarette butts or, or go to Capitol Hill. We defend what we love. And so right. the most important thing is exactly the work that Rue is doing of, of getting folks out to have positive, culturally relevant, safe, beautiful experiences in nature. Because once you're in love, you're like, wait, what? They're coming for they're coming from my mountain? Right. Hell no. You know, like, hell no, I'm gonna put my body in front. And you know, right. as a child, that was exactly what it was for my my sibling and I. We fell in love with the forest because we were in a racially hostile town and that was our safe place. And when loggers came to cut down those trees, a little six-year-old Naima stood between the loggers and the trees with her little six-year-old body and said, No, you know because she was in love. You couldn't make a child do that. She did that That's because right. she cared. That is a, a really beautiful story. And it leads into the question that I had about allegiance to the earth. Leah, in the introduction to the book, you talk about pledging allegiance to the earth with your sister. And Black Earth Wisdom at its core is a book about listening to the earth. And I wanted to end today's show by talking about what listening to the earth looks like and what it means for you in this time to borrow words from the book, um, in this time of quote, runaway consumption and corporate insatiability are harming the earth and every facet of American society, engendering racial violence, food apartheid, and climate injustice. And to borrow your question, Leah, what are you hearing the earth saying to humans at this time? It's funny, it feels very fair for you to turn that question on me because I asked it of every one of the contributors, but uh, it is a hard question. The answer, I, I think that, you know, the pandemic was a big time of recalibration for me in terms of not just supporting humans and having their experience uh, as it relates to the earth, but really rehydrating my own connection, my own listening. And so my practice, my spiritual practice is to go to the earth, ideally every day, at least a few times a week, make an offering, um, which is traditional in Yoruba culture make an offering to the land, a little gift of cornmeal or um, tobacco, and to say some words of gratitude, and then to be quiet and still and let the wind do the talking. And I hear the earth 
saying, I miss the laughter and footsteps of my children and I'm ready to welcome you home. That's gorgeous. Rue, I, I don't know to put you on the spot if you also have a practice of listening, but what are you hearing from the earth? Well, you know, for me, nature is God. <laughs> like <laughs> that is, you know, and the the enormity of that, you know, and, and the perspective it gives me. Um, but also my connectedness to it came into sharper focus, I believe, also during the pandemic. That, you know, when you think about the composition of our bodies being mostly water and the ways that water is in tune with the lunar cycle, like nature is not an over there. It is at hand always. It's about our conscious shifting to be present to it. And it's another way to help people not feel bereft if they don't live near a forest or a ranch or uh, open space, that everyone already has access. And that's something that I've been just more clear in articulating through the work um, is to help people recognize the ways that maybe they're not even as conscious of in their in a practice of connection and how varied that practice can look depending on where you're from or where what you have accessible to you you might live in an apartment with a little balcony where you've got some tomatoes growing you know there's no hierarchy you know and i think that it's been presented, especially in the outdoor recreation world, that you've got to have these peak experiences in order for it to matter. And, um, and so when I, when I just really step back into the presence of nature, um, that is God, that is the source for all that we could ever want to know or need for how to live our lives. That's the shift um, that has been generative, not only for me, but in order for me to help my my work have a more practical application for more people. So in the chapter that your interview, Rue, appears in, it's called Reading the Sky. And what you were just saying about water being part of us and that being in rhythm and we being part of the natural world reminded me of that interview. In it, readers are invited to think about information sources and to consider non-human sources, like our only information doesn't come from human thought. So I'm wondering what are the dangers of listening only to human drive knowledge and not opening ourselves to information from nature? I mean, gosh, when I think about our mere human experience, you know, it's limited. It's, it's soaked in ego. This is a tough one for me. Um, and this is why I turned to nature. Um, because sometimes, you know, we're, we're all a product of our environment, how our education, um, our, our worldview that sometimes has been passed on from generations. Um, and so I have found that when I get out into nature, especially into nature with people who I would think I'm very different than and allowing myself to see that person as nature sees them as part of creation um, was a way for me to think about the ways that nature 
way better than humans um, can teach us how we can be with one another. And I've said this many times, like when I go out into nature, the isms don't follow me. The flowers don't say, nope, not blooming for her. For me, I feel like there's infinite wisdom and not from a consumptive perspective, um, but more of a modeling uh, of what's possible that isn't typically seen or offered in our, our human conflict-driven experience. That's so important what you said. And so many contributors to Black Earth Wisdom said some version of nature doesn't hate, only people have figured that out, right? So part of course correction is, is just taking a few steps closer to that primary source and, and reading the earth directly, more of us reading the earth directly. And I thought that was a really brilliant way to frame uh, our relationship to this this sacred text, this Bible, this Torah, this Quran that we have right here, you know, that is the great beautiful earth. Black Earth Wisdom touches on that in so many ways. Thank you so much for, for writing it, Leah and Rue, for being a collaborator in that conversation. And thank you both for taking the time to talk to me today. It was really an, an honor to have you join me. Well, the honor and pleasure was all mine. Thank you for having us both. This was really a very uh, enlivening, inspiring conversation for me. I learned a lot. Thank yes, you. Thank you so much. This has been Common Ground Radio, which airs on the second Thursday of each month at 4 p.m. on WERU Community Radio 89.9 FM. Archives of previous episodes can be found on WERU.org as well as the WERU app. A special thanks to Leah and Rue for joining me today. I'd also like to thank my co-host, Caitlin Barker, and the show's editor, Claire Boland. Stay tuned for more great programming.